Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. We start with our great tax debate and this one raging in Ottawa right now. Pierre Polyev, the new Conservative Party leader, this guy is surging in the polls right now, shaking up Ottawa. His number one tax uh, target right now, tax increases by the Justin Trudeau government. And what he is especially mad about, what he calls payroll taxes, including Canada pension plan premiums set to go up, employment insurance premiums set to go up. Here is Polyev on the attack in the House of Commons over these hikes. What's his solution? To raise taxes on paychecks with higher EI and CPP premiums that will shrink paychecks and higher taxes on gas, groceries and heat. Why won't they cancel these tax hikes so that Canadians can keep a roof over their heads? Okay, so his opponents, though, say, hang on a second here. Are these really taxes? Like when you're talking Canada pension plan premiums, EI premiums, are those really taxes? Government kind of pushing back on that. Here's Federal Finance Minister Christian Freeland. The CPP and EI contributions every working Canadian makes are how we all pay for our retirement and how we create a safety net for every Canadian in case we lose our jobs. These contributions do not go into general government revenue. Okay, so that debate is on in Ottawa right now, and let's have our own debate on it right here, right now. Both sides of it for you. Jim Stanford, economist with the Centre for Future Work. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Jim. Mike, good morning. Good morning to you. Thanks for doing this. Also on the line, Franco Terrazano. Franco is the federal director of Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Pleased to welcome him back, too. Hey, Franco. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Okay, thank you guys to both of you. Jim Stanford, let me go to you first. So the, the debate over this now, Canada Pension Plan, EI premiums, is this a tax? Is it, When Poliev sees these are payroll taxes, do you agree with him? No. You pay in and you get it back. And uh, as the finance minister mentioned in that clip, both of those programs are ring-fenced in the sense that the money that is received is sequestered and used only for that purpose. So it is no more a tax to contribute to your Canada pension plan than it is a tax to put money into your own RRSP. You're doing it to save for your retirement. And the reality is the CPP is a, the most secure uh, way to get that payback in retirement. It's fully protected and it's indexed against inflation, uh, unlike almost all other uh, pension plan. So, so it's, uh, it's really an investment and it's uh, very, uh, it's, it's misinformation to call it a tax. Okay, so when Polyev calls this a payroll tax, he's getting a lot of attention, a lot of traction with that. You think that's misleading Canadians? Absolutely. And it's part of Mr. Polyev's approach to uh, political debate, which is to try and foment as much anger as possible without actually thinking through the uh, the details of how these things work. The other point is not just that he's, he's wrong in calling it a tax. He clearly has no idea how the Canada pension plan works. If he thinks the federal government can just wave a wand and say, well, we're going to change the premium schedule. 
The Canada mm. Pension Plan is negotiated between the federal and provincial governments. It has a chief actuary. It has a whole timetable of these things to make sure that it's well financed. So even thinking that it can be sort of a political device to play with the mm. premium rate shows a big lack of understanding on his part. Okay, Franco Terrazano, what do you say to that? Yeah, you know, I agree when, uh, with uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on one thing on taxes, and that's that these are payroll taxes. Even Trudeau himself has called these payroll taxes. The government itself acknowledges that these are payroll taxes. So it's a bit of a funny debate going on here. But, Mike, you know, let me just be upfront with you. I really don't care too much about the definition, whether it's a tax, a payment, a fee, whatever. I mean, what's keeping me up at night is the the middle-class Canadian workers who are making $65,000 a year who are forced to pay $4,500 themselves to the government through these payroll taxes. I mean, there's a lot of single moms, for example, who are making $65,000 a year. Well, imagine if they could keep some of that $4,500 to spend on dental bills, groceries, uh, formula, things of that nature. We've also seen these payroll taxes increase by more than $2,000 over the last decade. Remember, that 4500 bucks that that single mom is losing out to in payroll taxes, that's yearly. That's every single year. And we've seen these payroll taxes go up and up and up. Jim. Uh, Franco's wrong to say that this money is being paid to the government. He's, he's as misinformed as Mr. Polyev. You aren't paying money to the government when you pay your CPP premiums. The Canada Pension Plan is a separate legal entity with its own governance structure that has a federal and provincial uh, decision-making oversight, and it goes into the plan, and the only thing it can be used for is to pay your pension when you retire. So that single mom needs that pension, and the Canada Pension Plan has proven to be uh, an extremely successful pension plan because everyone is in it. It is transferable. That means if you go from one job to the next, your pension credits go right with you. That's, uh, that's very rare. And as I mentioned, fully indexed against inflation, which is wonderful these days. So it's not going to the government. It is not just money off of your paycheck. It is investing in your own retirement security. And the single mom needs that. And if you're concerned about their dental benefits, Franco, how about that new dental plan the government's bringing in? Mm -hmm. Okay, hey, Mike, Franco, I got to step yeah. in there because I do yeah. have to correct some misinformation. I mean, first of all, number one, we're really, he's just kind of trying to argue over semantics and definitions. Of course, it's the government taking this money. Look at your pay stuff, right under income taxes. What else is coming off your check? Well, your payroll comes off your no, paycheck, too. If you've got, a, if you've a, got a workplace pension, that comes off your paycheck. Mike, please let me just continue. So yeah. another thing that we have to talk about, too, is, is look, I mean, this is not the same as an RSP contribution. It's not the same as another type of fee. When you get to to choose what sandwich you want for, from Subway, you get to choose whether you pay into it or not. The CPP, EI, it's mandatory. But number two, to really correct some misinformation here, you are not paying into your own CPP. That is absolutely not how the CPP works. How the CPP works is that you essentially are paying for other people's retirement. You're trying to fund other years' golden years. And then you have to uh, hope for the good nature of politicians decades from now for the good finances decades from now to hopefully be able to get some of that pension payment back. Another piece of misinformation that we need to correct is that there is no legal requirement for the government to fund you your pension decades from now. Also, if you are to pass away early, <laughs> your family, your spouse, those pension benefits that you pay into, they are not transferred to your family and your spouse fully. So you do not owe the pension payments that you're paying into. The government okay. does. Okay, let me play a clip here for you, like 
Frankel, you made the point that Justin Trudeau himself had referred to these premiums as as payroll taxes. And Jim, let me go go into the wayback machine here. Now, this is two, <laughs> 2013. Justin Trudeau, leader of the opposition, the conservatives were in power. And here he is asking the conservative government of the day about payroll taxes. Listen clearly to how he phrases this. Trudeau. His question is specifically about his EI premiums, which are rising by $50 this year as direct payroll tax increase. Okay, so he called employment insurance premiums a payroll tax back when he was in opposition. Isn't he being kind of hypocritical, Jim? (laughs) Well, he might be, and opposition politicians, of course, are paid to critique the government of the day, no matter what they're uh, no matter what they're doing, and then of course it's quite common for them to change when they get into into power themselves. So my point here is an economic point that these yeah. are programs that are established for a reason. Money comes in and money goes out. The EI premiums, uh, likewise, the program is legally required to balance its funds over a seven-year time horizon. Uh, in fact, the government has suppressed the rise in EI premiums that normally would have occurred after the uh, COVID uh, pandemic in order to give people a little bit more uh, support. And ultimately, Canadian workers get it back. It's an insurance program in the event that you become unemployed. And since... Okay. uh, Okay. Let me me, me just interject here because it's not just Mr. Trudeau who's referring to them as payroll taxes. Yeah. Right? It's not just them. It's the government of Canada. Go on Google right now, type in what taxes you pay. You'll find a government of Canada website that includes the EI and CPP payroll taxes. If you have yeah. an issue and you want to appeal to the government on EI and CPP, where do you go? The Tax Court of Canada. This is a tax, and this year it's $4,500 it's costing a working-class Canadian. And you know what? These taxes have continued to go up year after year after year, an extra $2,000 in payroll taxes being taken from our pay stubs over the last decade. All right. We continue our payroll tax debate. Are they really taxes, the CPP and EI premiums you pay on your your check? We got both sides of you here for you. Jim Stanford, Franco Terrazano, and a ton of phone calls. Sharon and Burnaby. Hi, Sharon. Go ahead. Well, I'm a senior, and so is my husband, and we do get the CPP. Uh, we are very fortunate that my husband also has a pension from another government job that he worked, but there's a lot of people who will, that will be their only pension when they reach their senior years. It's kind of like a forced savings in a way, because when that lady with the kids gets to be 65, if she hasn't in a job where she gets a pension like the government workers do, then they are going to count on that pension. I mean, yeah. I, 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 that probably of his office tree, that's all i got to say, because I ain't going to vote for somebody who talks about getting rid of the Bank of Canada, taking Canada out of the global economic forum, and now getting rid of CPP and EI. I think people need to give their heads a shake here. Okay, Sharon, thank you for the call. Well, I'm not sure he's talking about getting rid of EI and the Canada Pension Plan, I guess. He's what? Well, Franco, I guess he's saying cancel the increases in the premiums. And you do you agree with him? Yeah, I agree that we should not be raising taxes during the middle of a pandemic when people in the private sector lost their job, took a cut where small businesses were going down. I mean, these payroll taxes shouldn't have gone up, especially when small businesses were looking for extra money so they could keep more of their staff in place. It was what about the worst the, possible time. What about the Canada pension plan, though? You got to fund it. 
Well, here's another thing, though. Why is the CPP taxes increasing by 50% over the decade? Are, are benefits to seniors going up by 50%? Are we going to be able to retire 50% earlier? You know, don't hold your breath. I'd love yeah, to Jim. know if other seniors' pensions went up by 50 Jim, what do you say to that? Here's a little lesson on how the CPP actually works. It's uh, got a, a, a 50-year history. It, it depends on agreements reached between the federal and the provincial governments. The increase in the premium that we're seeing this year from 5.7% of earnings to 5.95% of earnings is the fifth in a five-year plan that was agreed between all those governments and implemented several years ago. So Franco uh, has no idea how CPP works if he thinks Prime Minister Trudeau can stand up and say, I personally cancel this upcoming premium. He's got no legal right to do that. So apart from misunderstanding what the role of the CPP is, this is just a political football. It has okay. no well, possibility. You know I even, if, I do even if that, Mr. Paul was Prime Minister, he wouldn't have the right. Hang on, hang on, hang on. I'll, I'll insist that you guys don't talk over each other. <laughs> let, me just, let me just fit in another call here real quick, though, in the interest of time. Frank in Vancouver. Hey, Frank, go ahead. Hey, how you doing? Um, I don't have a major problem with the CPP, but I do think uh, we should have the option to opt out. I mean, uh, also, I I do think government workers, uh, they get enough of our tax dollars. They should be ineligible to collect CPP if they're getting a government pension. And the last thing is there should be a transfer mechanism. So if, uh, you know, if at 54 years old, you know, I pass away, that money should be paid in a lump sum to whoever I choose, generally my family. Okay, we just have a minute left, so I'm going to give both our panelists 30 seconds here to sum up. Franco, go ahead. you got 30 seconds here. Yeah, these, these are taxes, and it's costing people thousands of dollars every year. And really, it's the whole thing that's going on here. We see payroll taxes up, alcohol taxes up, carbon taxes up. Canadians are paying way too much tax because this government is wasting too much money. Jim Stanford, 30 seconds. There's another dimension of hypocrisy behind Mr. Polyev's claims. He is so worried about inflation, which he says the federal government caused. That's not true. But he opposed giving any kind of financial assistance to renters or low-income Canadians. And now he says, but we will want to cut taxes. If he believes that inflation is the problem, then his tax cut argument is completely hypocritical. Thank you to both of you guys for a really good discussion. Thank I appreciate you, Thank you to both of you. Appreciate it. Jim Stanford, Center for Future Work. Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. They're going to put in a bid. They, they've saved up their down payment. They want to buy a place to live. And they go to put in their bid. And they realize they're bidding not against other families that are also looking for a place to live. They're bidding against short-term speculators that are buying for the purposes of flipping that property. That's just not fair. Okay, it's David Eby speaking yesterday, of course, the former attorney general, the former housing minister, too, and his housing plan rolled out yesterday, of course, running for the NDP leadership, posed to be the, he's poised to be the next premier here. There is a ton of stuff in this plan. This is a huge plan. This could impact a lot of people. You got a new anti-flipping tax in there. You buy a property, resell it within two years, you'd be hit with that tax. That's what he was talking about there in that clip. A no rental, no rental bans in stratas. All condos be available to rent, potentially overruling strata bylaws. Condo Owners Association push already pushing back against that. All single family homes could be redeveloped into triplexes, secondary suites, legal, everywhere. 
the B.C. government could punish and penalize municipalities that don't approve enough new housing starts. There's a lot in here. We've got David Eby on the show coming up later. He'll be on at 1030. Looking forward to talking to him. Let's break down this plan now with my guest, Thomas Davidoff. Tom is the director at the UBC Center for Urban Economics and Real Estate. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Thomas, thanks for coming on today. Thank you. And if you'll indulge me, if you combine the news stories from yesterday, like the uh, music you just had, uh, after EB's plan, BC will no longer be a gangster's paradise. Very nice segue there. Yes, Coolio, rest in peace. He passed away. That's a that's a great song. I have heard that that expression used before, talking about BC's real estate market. That it is like a gangster's paradise. But there have already been a lot of measures by government to try and clean that up. What do you think about this plan, Tom? That was outlined by David Eby yesterday. I think it's great on a lot of dimensions, and of course, politically, it has the feature that it addresses both supply and so-called toxic demand and financialization, you know, which I would say in order are the three things, you know, you'd want to address. The the supply stuff is really important. No more single-family zoning anywhere uh, is terrific. I mean, you know, basically, if your land is so expensive that single-family zoning is a constraint, it's a bad idea. And if land is cheap enough that people want to build single-family zoning, then you don't need it because the market will take care of it. So that's really good. Uh, Most importantly, I think the plan recognizes that in a place like greater Vancouver, you've got whatever, 21 jurisdictions, and each of them has the incentive really to keep out low-income housing, right? Preserve amenity, low-rise, easy parking. You know, at, at a community level, there's a lot of reason to do that. But at the aggregate level, that leads to, you know, people not finding homes. It's homelessness. It's young people feeling depressed about living and staying in greater Vancouver. So collectively, we have different incentives than individual municipalities. And there's such explicit recognition of that. So I think that's really my favorite part of the plan. Okay, let me let's uh, boy, there's a lot in here. Let's break down a couple of them here. So the flipping tax that he proposes there, that if you buy a property and then it's resold within two years, you would face this tax. Now, he did outline some exemptions exceptions there like if you know you got a couple going through a divorce for example there would be an exception there's some other exceptions but i don't i don't know i mean how are you supposed to manage or enforce a law like that because there could be a, a whole number of reasons that people might decide to sell a home within two years and buy something else and it doesn't make them a property speculator or a flipper yeah you could throw people in water and if they float then you know they're a speculator right <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Uh, it's, 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 yeah, yeah. Flippers. I do think what flippers do is exacerbate cycles. So, you know, when you have a hot market and expectations of growth, you're going to see flippers and that can lead to overheating. Then they pull out and that can exacerbate a crash. So it's not a totally crazy idea. It's not first order, right? The reason we have flippers is because people expect high price growth because of the fundamentals here. It's not that the flippers themselves are a fundamental cause. Okay, let's uh, talk about some of the other elements in this plan. Another one was the government having the right of first refusal to buy rental buildings that come up on the market. And he, he outlined a plan where government would work with nonprofits to buy up like apartment buildings if they're put up for sale and preserve them as, as rental property. And we're already hearing pushback from this, that this is government overreach. But let's listen to David Eby talking about 
that here yesterday, people who are renters and the fear of losing their home if their rental home, if their rental property is sold. Have a listen to this. You know that fear of looking out your window and seeing a for sale sign on the lawn of your rental building and having that fear that your building is going to be sold, that the rents might go up, that it might be redeveloped, that the home that you've lived in for years, maybe decades, will no longer be your home. The government could support nonprofit organizations in buying those buildings. Okay, what do you think of that? Well, you know, government in some ways can borrow at lower rates than the private sector. You have to be careful because the reason the government can borrow cheaply is if, you know, a property on which the government borrows money to help out a non-for-profit, you know, doesn't perform, the government can pay out of other revenue. So whether you're really borrowing more cheaply to buy real estate in the private sector is sort of a complicated question. But I think that's the premise is, you know, real estate has performed very well. Returns have been way above government borrowing costs, at least historically. And if that's true going forward, taxpayers can sort of do well by doing good uh, by investing in rental property. You know, a couple of years ago, or even just really just a few months ago, when the government was borrowing at such super low rates, I think buying and investing in, in, in housing and being able to subsidize below markets because of the good returns and the low interest rates made a lot of sense. I think enabling uh-huh. something like that is fine. Right of re- first refusal is going to be logistically complicated uh, uh-huh. because you don't want to get in the way of legitimate transactions and have somebody bid and be like, well, I, I hope I get this, but I'm not sure, right? Well, yeah, that's what it occurred to me as well. Could this potentially have an unintended consequence of raising real estate prices going in the opposite direction that you want? Like, it just seems to me like anytime the government gets involved in any kind of real estate market transactions like this, prices prices tend to go up. So I'm already getting a lot of pushback from people in the in the real estate sector emailing me here this morning saying this terrible idea. They're really worried about it. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think the the concern would be disruption of redevelopment. Um, Obviously, tenant protections are really important. You know, in Vancouver today and, you know, with with the the Broadway and Vancouver plan tenant protections, you know, it's bad if you get (laughs) displaced, but, but not the end of the world. But in some jurisdictions that don't have those protections, it's really quite bad to be displaced. Uh, So I can see the idea here. Uh, I think working with industry, you know, maybe identifying a subset of buildings where it's appropriate or clear conditions under which government might step in. You know, I think I think having government invest in housing is not crazy, you know, especially given reasonable expectations that rents are going to grow faster than interest rates. Speaking of Thomas, Tom Davidoff from UBC on David Eby's housing plan rolled out yesterday. David Eby will be a guest later on the show. Another highlight here of this plan uh, a rental, no more rental bans and stratas. So some strata condo developments have got bylaws that you're not allowed to rent out the condo. He says that you should have all these condos available for to be rented out. The BC Condo Owners Association already pushing back on this. This is an infringement on property rights. Let's listen to David Eby here yesterday talk about the shortage of rental housing. Here he is. We are desperate for rental housing. We can't have a situation where a unit is sitting vacant. Okay, so the Condo Owners Association, though, Tom, saying that condos are like 99% occupied in the province right now. They're not sitting em- empty, like EB described there. But your thoughts? 
Yeah, it's interesting. You've sort of got three levels of externality, right? So you've got a homeowner might want to rent out their property. Maybe it's somebody who bought a condo for investment purposes. And the building says, no, you know, we don't want transient occupants of the place. We want people who are committed and, and maybe affluent enough to, to maintain some level of affluence in the building, right? For whatever reason, people might want to exclude renters. So, you know, the individual renting to a renter is bad, arguably, for the building. And I think that's the condo association's perspective. They should be able to crack down on that and limit the individual's property right on their side. What the province is saying is, hey, we've got a rental shortage. And you having your distaste for renters living in the building is exacerbating a rental crisis and not fair to renters. So just as the building is sort of restricting the property rights of individual owners, The province wants to double restrict or unrestrict because they think that the building by doing that is making a shared problem worse. So I don't, you know, I don't put a lot of stock in in what the condos owners are saying in terms of a um, an infringement on rights, because it's exactly the same principle on on which they infringe on on uh, their owners rights. Right. Well, okay. well, that's a good point. But. It seems to me, though, wouldn't it be make more sense for the government to do a crackdown on short-term rentals like Airbnbs? Like that seems to me that you know, if you have someone who owns a condo and they're using it basically as a hotel room, isn't that a bigger problem than people who than these no rental rules in a well, in a condo? Go ahead. I mean, in a way, that's the biggest problem, right? If I was a, a condo building, the thing I'd worry about most is, you know, people coming in and out all, at all hours, uh, in, you know, different people you don't know into an Airbnb. So I would think there would be common cause between the province, which wants to see homes used as residences rather than short-term uh, occupancy, and, and, and the condo owners would probably feel similarly. So I think in the plan, we do have further tightening of speculation tax rules which would hopefully say, you know, if you rent a place to somebody and that tenant is always, you know, using the places in Airbnb, that, that should run afoul of the speculation tax, and maybe they're cracking down in that way. Okay, let's uh, talk a little bit, Tom, about potential fight with municipalities over jurisdiction here. EB indicating yesterday there could be penalties for municipalities that don't approve enough housing starts, and he was asked yesterday, are you not just on a collision course here with the municipalities infringing on their jurisdiction. Here's what he had to say. I'll get your thoughts. Are you saying that you are willing to go toe to toe with mayors uh, to push some of these things through? My commitment to them uh, is to work with them to fix this. Uh, and my commitment to British Columbians is we are going to work quickly. Okay. He says he wants to work with mayors to fix it. But I th- I've already heard from Mayor saying this sounds like more like a threat. Your thoughts? Yeah. Well, let's look at responsible politicians like uh, Mary Ann Boother, Craig Cameron, and West Vancouver, who have done their best to incorporate more density, appropriate, uh, you know, numbers of homes per acre in West Vancouver, right? And they run into severe local opposition, right? The reason local politicians exclude rental housing and apartments from their communities which happens on the majority of land throughout the the, the province, the reason they do that is because they live in terror of local voters who feel like that extra housing is a disamenity because of parking spillovers or whatever. So an individual municipality and the mayor reflecting the, the population has little choice but to go along with that sort of nimbyism. 
but at a, at a collective level, people have to live somewhere. So, you know, when one individual community refuses, that just means more crowding and just congestion has to go into other municipalities. And it means higher prices and rents everywhere. So it's individually rational for the communities, but in a way it's selfish. So to make, you know, from a provincial level, you can't fully delegate land use to municipalities or you're just inviting this this problem. Right. Okay. When you have a collective issue got to deal with it collectively and providing better incentives for municipalities, I think is the best part. And again, I think most mayors and councilors who are responsible people, but live in terror of the NIMBY vote, I think they'll actually be happy to have their hands tied because they can tell the NIMBYs, look, I'm being as restrictive as the province will allow me, but I can only do so much. Right, right. It's not my fault. (laughs) Go talk to EB if you're not happy. Tom, thanks for coming on about, about this today. Real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Families shouldn't be competing with investors for a place to live. And so this tax will be aimed at very specifically taking the profit out of that transaction for short-term flippers, making sure that uh, families who are bidding for housing, that individuals are trying to get a place to live, trying to get into that property market, are not competing with uh, short-term profiteers. Okay, that's uh, David Eby uh, speaking yesterday, the rollout of his housing plan, and he's talking there about the anti-flipping tax he is now proposing. Let's discuss this further with my guest, Dane Itell. Dane is a real estate analyst with Itell Insights. Hey, Dane, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike, great to be back with the show. We, we just got a few couple of minutes here. Dane, what jumps out at you in this plan? You know what, it's interesting. I mean, removing the rental restrictions is something that uh, will definitely have a major impact on a few markets, West Vancouver specifically, uh, and then, of course, the short-term flippers. Um, it's, it, it's market manipulation. It will have a short-term impact, but going longer forward, I really don't see how it's going to have too much of uh, an impact for housing affordability. Yeah, and for the, uh, the, rental, the rental restrictions there, how will that impact the market? Yeah, it'll actually increase values. Um, so when wow. you kind of keep it uh, as rental uh, not allowed in the building or age restrictions, you know, certain types of things like that, it, it deters investors from putting money to work in that place because they cannot get a return on their investment. As soon as you remove the rental restrictions, you'll actually have more you know, potential foreign owners or at the very least uh, investor owners that are going to be purchasing the properties and then, of course, renting it potentially to the locals. But certainly home ownership has kind of gone by the wayside here and is just expecting to live in a property as a rental. But home ownership is certainly not on the table. Could that potentially then drive up home prices undoubtedly it will wow well that's kind of the opposite of what he wants to do isn't it kind of it, it really is um kind of reading through it again it looks like we're moving more towards just making a, you know a, a place to live for local residents not necessarily home ownership they want to make more rentals available however removing rental restrictions again will increase the amount of rentals available but it will absolutely increase the values of the property Dan, thanks for coming on. Sorry, we just uh, short on time today. Appreciate it. No problem, Mike. Thanks okay. for your time. Hey. All right, welcome back to the show. Here we go now with David Eby's housing plan. Of course, the former attorney general running for the leadership of the provincial NDP, the housing plan he released yesterday. Wow, there's a lot in here. There's a big plan. Let's discuss it with him now. David Eby, very pleased to welcome him back to the show. David, thank you for coming on today. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, yeah, thanks a lot for doing it. So let's, uh, boy, there's a lot in here, so let's see how much we can dig through here. Let's start with the anti-flipping tax that you propose, I think getting a lot of the headlines. What is the purpose of this? What do you hope to achieve with that? 
well, anyone who's been out there looking for a place to buy uh, knows that we have a shortage of housing that is actually attainable for people, middle-class families, for middle-class individuals to buy. And when they're putting a bid in on a place, they find themselves competing with short-term investors who are buying properties and flipping them shortly thereafter to make money from uh, a short-term investment. They're not looking for a place to live. And so this tax looks to take the profit out of that activity. Uh, it zeroes out after you hold the property for a couple of years and uh, two years. And, uh, and it uh, takes away that profit motive so that uh, people who are trying to buy a house or just competing with other people who are looking for a place to live, not a place to invest. Okay, so you listed a few exemptions to the tax yesterday. If someone changes their job, they lose their job, uh, they're divorced, uh, they become disabled, forcing a move that they would not be subjected to this anti-flipping tax, right? But, you know, I can think of lots of other situations where people might legitimately want to move within two years of buying a place, and that doesn't make them property flippers. That's right. Uh, there are lots of life events that could come up to cause someone to need to sell a place sooner. And so making yeah. sure that the tax isn't hitting those families, isn't hitting those individuals is important. Um, but this is not a minor problem. You know, even right now with the market, the state, it's in about 10 percent of properties, I understand, are being uh, uh, bought and sold within a year. Last year, it was about one in five properties. And, and so we need to address it. What if you don't like your neighbors? Would you and you want you want to move away? Would you get hit with the tax? Yeah, the the tax is focused on people who are engaging in short term investment. Uh, I, I you know I appreciate Mike that there are a bunch of scenarios that we can think of when someone might need to oh. sell in a in a in a short window of time, uh, right. and the tax needs to have those exemptions to allow people to do that. Uh, but the reality is, what we're seeing in the housing market is people who are looking for a place to live for their family are competing with these short-term investors and we've got to chase them out of the market. We need to, we have a housing shortage. And so the housing we have available needs to be going to those folks who are actually going to live in these places. I I guess my point is that this could turn into some sort of bureaucratic hell because I can think of all kinds of exemptions to be run pages long. Like maybe you decide you don't like the traffic on your commute to work. You wanted to move closer to your job. So would that, then would you get hit by the tax? Yeah, the, I mean, Mike, I, I, I don't know about you, but um, I know a number of people who have uh, tried to buy into the housing market and failed, and some have succeeded, yeah. but they're not selling their property within two years. I mean, people have challenges with neighbors. They have challenges with the neighborhood. They have reasons why they might want to move, but there are significant costs and impacts for a family to buy and sell properties within a year. Uh, that's yeah. not something that we're seeing a lot of, but we are seeing that happening uh, from this group of people who are profiting from the housing shortage we have. We need to address this shortage, and there's key components in plan about bringing more housing on for people. Um, right. But while we're doing that, we need to protect people from these investors and speculators. Okay, how about outlawing strata rental bans that you outlined yesterday? There are some condo development stratas where there are bylaws that you're not allowed to rent your place out. And you want to get rid of that, right? So every what what does that mean? Like every condo would be available to rent if the owner wants to rent it out. That's right. There are some buildings, right. uh, mostly older strata buildings, uh, where there's a restriction that prevents people from renting out their units. We right. know from the speculation tax that there are thousands of units uh, in the province that are vacant uh, in uh, communities where the rental vacancy rate is about 0%. I mean, there's, there are people searching for housing. They can't find a place to rent. There's someone who wants to rent this vacant unit, 
But the strata rule prevents that from happening. And the main reason I understand, Mike, is that people are worried, you know, you get a renter in there, it creates a bunch of problems. And how do you get rid of them if there's an absentee owner and they destroy life in the condo and so on? So making sure that there are rules so that strata can go to the residential tenancy branch and have that tenant removed and recover those costs from the absentee owner is an essential part of this as well to make sure that buildings are livable. But we just can't have a situation where we have thousands of empty units and people who are desperate to rent uh, in the middle of the housing crisis. Could this not have an unintended consequence of actually driving up condo prices if you're now opening them up to potentially to investors? Like someone says, okay, I'm going to buy a condo in this, in this development now because now I can rent it out. So it's a good investment for me, and that potentially drives prices up. Yeah, we we just uh, finished talking about uh, how we're going to chase uh, investors and speculators who are in the short term out. But uh, but people who are going to, and especially people who are going to build uh, rental housing, we do need that kind of investment uh, in the housing market. Uh, one of the reasons why you see a price differential between rent-restricted and non-rent-restricted buildings is because uh, there is a housing shortage generally. And so um, addressing that housing shortage is going to make a big difference here as well making sure that that, uh, homes are more affordable for people to rent and to purchase. Speaking to David Eby about his housing plan outlined yesterday, so let's talk about uh, some of the density measures in your plan, allowing secondary suites in homes, allowing single-family homes to be redeveloped as triplexes. So this would apply province-wide, is that correct? Uh, so for the uh, secondary suites, yes, uh, there's currently uh, communities in the province. You might have a basement suite that complies entirely with the building code. Uh, and there are communities in the province that say that you're not allowed to rent that out, even though we're in the middle of a housing crisis. So saying, look, uh, that uh, is just not an acceptable situation. We need to have uh, the ability for people to rent out units that they have. Uh, both to support their own family, but also to create housing for people that are desperately looking for a place to rent. Around the uh, single-family homes, only in urban areas in British Columbia, and the key is uh, going to be working with municipalities to make sure they have the infrastructure to support this. But the problem we have right now, Mike, is if you're a house-rich senior that's income poor and you want to solve that problem, you can either do a reverse mortgage or you can sell your place. The only other option, if you go to City Hall and say, look, I'd like to create another unit and sell it or rent it, they say, well, you have to go through a rezoning process. Uh, It can take years and tens of thousands of dollars just to get through that before you even start the work. So we need a process that's as easy as replacing that single-family house with another single-family house for building more than one unit on the same footprint. Right, and you kind of touched on this briefly, but does that not potentially put more pressure on neighborhoods for things like parking, uh, sewer and water, garbage collection, if you're going to densify in these neighborhoods that are now single family, where do you, do you run the risk now of creating like parking chaos in some of these neighborhoods? Well, we, we have huge strain in our province from a growing population. We're, we're growing faster than we've grown in the last 60 years. And the numbers from the government of Canada are that our country is growing faster than we have since uh, possibly when Newfoundland entered, entered Confederation in 1949, just remarkable population growth. And people are seeing that strain and rising prices for housing, and they're seeing uh, congestion on our roads. And, and we need to respond to that. You know, we need to provide the transit, we need to provide the roads, we need to provide the schools and hospitals to respond to a growing population and support yeah. fast-growing communities without question, Mike. 
Um, but, you know, we're also seeing people living in their cars that have decent jobs. We see people who are unable to, uh, to find a place to live. And, uh, and we need to respond to this housing crisis proportionally. It's serious for families out there. And I know sometimes it's a pain to look for parking for a little bit longer. But to compare that to the, the strain and stress of families that, and individuals who just can't find a place to live, um, I think right. we need to just refocus. Right. And you outlined a lot of uh, rental plans in the in your plan yesterday, including the right of the, the province to potentially enter the market to buy up apartment buildings or rental buildings that come on the market in order to preserve them as as rental units. You know, I, again, I'm, I'm hearing from people who are saying this could have the uh, an opposite or unintended effect of driving up prices if the, if the province is now getting involved in a competitive bidding process on these on these properties. How do you can, can you just outline what you're hoping to achieve there? Yeah, any any renter that's listening to your show right now, Mike, um, lives in fear of the moment that the for sale sign goes up on their front lawn of their building because uh, they know what that means. It means their rents are going to go up. Uh, it means the property is likely to be redeveloped and they're ha- going to have to look for another place. They may have been there for decades. And when you're in a hole, as we are in the housing crisis, you need to stop digging. We can't lose that affordable housing. So supporting nonprofits to be able to buy these buildings, giving the province a right of first refusal when they go up for sale, uh, will allow us to um, preserve that affordable rental housing. And many of these buildings are old. They need to be uh, redeveloped. So if they are redeveloped, that the tenants are protected and they're part of that redevelopment, that they're benefiting from it. That's the goal here, uh, because we know when we lose those buildings, uh, many tenants, they can't find a place to live and then uh, they end up either homeless or they end up in uh, terrible substandard living conditions that uh, that are just unacceptable. And many of these folks are seniors. Okay, so if the province has a right of first refusal to buy these properties when they come up on the market, do you think that will drive potentially drive the price of these assets up or down? Because it seems to me like this potentially inflates the price. The goal is to discourage these big corporations, these big investment trusts from operating in British Columbia, um, that they know that if they put a deal together that looks good to them, that the province will have a chance to scoop it. Uh, We don't want them operating here. Uh, We don't want them bidding up the cost of these buildings. We don't want them uh, making profits at the expense of renters. And so uh, the hope is with this initiative that uh, we'll be able to uh, pressure them and uh, keep some of the speculation in the market under control uh, so that we can look after tenants and make sure they're protected. David, uh, the Liberal opposition are criticizing your plan, of course, and one of the points they make is that you were the housing minister for two years. How come you didn't get this stuff done when you were the minister in charge? Yeah, I think um, a a lot of your listeners will know what I was up to when I was housing minister. I'm very proud of it. I mean, we were in COVID and there was chaos uh, in uh, downtown Victoria with uh, just hundreds of people living in parks and on the streets. Uh, We had the Strathcona Park encampment. And uh, getting those people inside and dealing with COVID and and supporting people in uh, social housing around uh, everything related to the pandemic was uh, was critical. But looking at issues we face now, like in the downtown east side and and stable or growing homeless populations in other parts of the province, we need to do more and we need to go upstream and providing that middle class housing and working to provide middle class housing to take that pressure off the bottom as well as providing additional social housing is going to help us get out of this. Uh, but it's, yeah. it's going to require us all working together, cities, province, the feds, uh, and private industry, as well as the nonprofit sector. So I'm really looking forward to doing this work, Mike. 
Last question for you. We're entering into the next phase of the NDP leadership contest here. Your opponent, Anjali Apadurai, was a guest here on the show last week. I've spoke to some of her supporters who feel like the party brass is getting ready to disqualify her because she has signed up so many members and that she's a, a threat to your to you winning this job. Do you think she should her name? Are you do you think her name should be on the ballot and people, the members of your party should be allowed to vote for her if they want? She should not be disqualified. Yeah, I'm really excited about the leadership race. It gives me a chance to talk about ideas like this housing plan. And it's a chance for our members to weigh in and uh, and uh, to help uh, inform the direction of the province and and to take stock of where our government is, where we need to do more and where we need to do better and uh, and what we've done so far. So I'm excited about the leadership race. I've, uh, I'm really proud of my team. We've signed up a lot of people to the party and it's going to be a good race. Okay, well, what about my question though? Do you think her name should be on the ballot? You have you have oh, no fear yeah, going yeah, against yeah. her, right? I mean, I think we should. I think we should have a, a leadership race. I think there's a benefit to to taking stock where we're at, to looking at new ideas, and uh, and I feel good about where my campaign is at, and I look forward to the debate. Right, and she should not be disqualified by the party from running against you. Well, that would make it hard to have the race, Mike. I understand she's okay. uh, possibly the only other candidate. Thank you for coming on today. You bet, Mike. Okay, can you tell what came in number one there? Yeah, if you listen to that theme song, yeah, we're counting down here. The top 100 TV shows of all time as selected by Rolling Stone magazine. And their list has just come out. And we could do the whole show debating this one. Kurt Smakel is my guest, movie critic and podcast host at Three Angry Nerds. Is his podcast a Kurt? Hey, Mike, how are you today? I'm doing great. This is always fun to go over these lists. Rolling Stone, they've done this before, so this is their brand new list here. Top 100 Mm -hmm. greatest TV shows of all time. And coming in at number one, and I think it's a good choice, it's The Sopranos. Let's listen to a little bit of The Sopranos here, Kurt, and I'll get your thoughts. Mm. Are you in the mafia? Am I in the what? Whatever you want to call it, organized crime. That's total crap. Who told you that? Dad, I've lived in the house all my life. I've seen police come with warrants. I've seen you going out at 3 in the morning. So you never seen Doc Cusimano go out at 3 in the morning on a call? Did the Cusimano kids ever find $50,000 in Krugerrands and a forty-five automatic while they were hunting for Easter eggs? <laughs> okay. Number one. Kurt, I like the choice. I, I got I to say I'd probably list this number one myself. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely think it's a good show. I would maybe not uh, number one for me. I'd, I'd say at least top ten, maybe top twenty-five. But yeah, it's up there for sure. But that's the thing with these lists, you know. Anytime you see it, you think like, oh, it, it always sparks some kind of opinion out of people. Yeah, for sure. And I think The Sopranos really broke the mold for a, a lot of TV and sort of ushered in a sort of a a new kind of golden era of television with the, the great job that they did with those characters. The actors are fantastic. I also find it hilarious. Like, you know, the show yeah. is very, very funny. And I think that's, I would probably put that my personal number one. Let's go to Rolling Stones. Keep counting down here. Number two, greatest TV show of all time is selected by Rolling Stone. It's Breaking Bad. Let's have a listen to Breaking Bad. 
It ceases to exist without me. No, you clearly don't know who you're talking to. So let me clue you in. I am not in danger, Skyler. I am the danger. A guy opens his door and gets shot, and you think that of me? No. I am the one who knocks. Okay, and I and I actually got it wrong here because just taking a look at the list and make sure we get this right here, Breaking Bad actually came in at number three on the list. So I made a boo-boo there, but I'll tell you what number two is here in a minute. But number three, Breaking Bad. Kurt, what do you think? Uh, such a great show. I actually just recently rewatched it, and I was reminded just how great the show is. Just great acting, great cinematography, and the plot just, oh, it's great. It definitely deserves to be up there. I would put it even, yeah, probably number three or, you know, relatively around there myself, too. Awesome performance by Brian Cranston as Walter White. Unforgettable. I also really thought Anna Gunn was great as as Skyler. I once yeah. saw I was, once saw uh, Anna Gunn in Victoria and in a supermarket because she was filming a, a movie, and I was like, um, I was having a little fanboy moment there, but I didn't want to say anything to her because I didn't want to be a creep. <laughs> <laughs> but a great show. Yeah. So okay, number two. Now let's get this get the order right here. Let's go to number two, greatest TV show of all time, according to Rolling Stone. This may be a surprise to some, but maybe not so much. The Simpsons. The Simpsons. Let's have a listen. Simpson. Here are your messages. You have thirty minutes to move your car. You have ten minutes. Your car has been impounded. Your car has been crushed into a cube. You have thirty minutes to move your cube. Hello, Mr. Burns' office. Is it about my cube? <laughs> okay. Number two all time, The Simpsons. Kurt, what do you think? I think this might be the most contentious choice on this list because I would say there are some seasons of The Simpsons that were really good, but there's also been some that have kind of missed the mark in terms of the humor and writing. So I don't know. I don't think it's as consistently good as some other shows, and I would argue that you're probably better off watching a show that's more consistently entertaining than one that has those big peaks and valleys. But, uh, you know, it's it's a long-running show, and I think it's, it deserves some level of respect even for just that alone. For sure. I mean, I would rank it pretty high, too. I'm not sure I would put it number two, but it is the longest-running TV show of all time, is it not? Isn't it the long that holds the record, I believe? I think it is, yeah. I think it's yeah. definitely, if it isn't... Uh, It'll be longest running show. It's one of, but yeah, I'm pretty sure it's the longest running show on TV right now. Okay. Rounding out the top 10 here. Let's run them down quickly here. Coming in at number four on the Rolling Stone list, The Wire from HBO. And this is one that I think, yeah, is widely respected and admired. Your thoughts, Kurt? Yeah, this is a bit, you know, in contrast to The Simpsons, where The Simpsons is peaks and valleys. The Wire just from start to finish was a great show. There was no real dips in quality there. So I would argue, yeah, something like The Wire is a more well-constructed, well-calculated piece of programming than something like The Simpsons. Definitely deserves to be up there for sure. Another great HBO show, HBO uh, well-represented on this list. Number five on this list Fleabag, uh, great British comedy from the from BBC. That's another one that surprised me at how high it is. What do you think? Yeah, that's a very well-regarded show, and it's one that uh, a lot of people 
following when it came out, and it definitely garnered a lot of attention for the cast and crew that worked on it. Uh, and even uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who worked on that show, I mean, that show launched her career, more or less. I mean, she's gotten so many writing gigs out of it. So even just for the writing alone, that show is fantastic. Again, okay. maybe I wouldn't put it number five, but, you know, yeah. argument to be made, I'm sure. Rounding out the rest of the top ten here, greatest TV shows of all time, as selected by Rolling Stone, number six, Seinfeld. Oh, I'm sure there's a lot of Seinfeld fans out there. Yeah, they make the top ten. Number seven, Mad Men. Boy, that won a lot of awards. Very entertaining, for short. Number eight, Cheers. Cheers, the great comedy on NBC for many years is number eight. Number nine, Atlanta. What do you think of that selection, Atlanta, in the top ten? Atlanta's a very bizarre show in that it's a show where the writers just do whatever they want, and they, there's no real rhyme or reason, but everything they do is just completely fantastic. Uh, it, it has to be one of the most important and one of the strongest shows out in recent memory. And from what I recall, I believe the season that just came out was their last season, so that show is all wrapped up and done now. But, yeah, that is uh, probably one of the best shows out of the last 10 years, in my opinion. Definitely deserves to be up, in the, at least in the top 10, for sure. And making, rounding out the top 10, number 10 on the list, the Mary Tyler Moore Show, CBS in the 1970s, one of the great ensemble comedies, and uh, the beloved Mary Tyler Moore. Mm-hmm. Good, a good selection for top 10, would you say, Kurt? Yeah, for sure, and I think there's some yeah. younger audiences who maybe wouldn't uh, know much about the show, but, uh, you know, I've seen... Uh, episodes of the show and it was a great show back when it was on i, I don't, don't disagree that uh, you know again maybe it doesn't quite get the love it, it does uh, nowadays but you know maybe lists like this change that and people go check it out more okay what is your personal number one greatest tv show all time i think probably my favorite show of all time would be mad men or, uh, like okay. that's a show that i've gone back and rewatched and i think from start to finish that show is just perfect like there's no like lack of story writing or lack of effort or quality like from start to finish it's just such a great show all right we're talking about the greatest tv shows of all time with kurt smakel we threw that theme song in there for tim uh mash is his favorite song his favorite show Hey, Tim, where did, where did MASH come in on the list there, Tim? 25, right? Yeah, it came in at number 25, and a lot of people will probably be a bit surprised that that's my favorite TV show because I'm only 26 yeah. years old. But since I was in high school, I discovered it by chance. My mom recommended it to me, and I ha- I've watched every single episode like probably 15 times. Yeah, and of course, the uh, the finale of MASH was one of the most watched shows of all time at the time. In terms of, yeah, it got five and a half times more viewers than the Game of Thrones finale. Just to put wow. it into perspective. Holy smokes, that's a lot. Okay, yeah. let's go to the phone calls. We got a lot of them here. Dave and Langley. Hi, Dave. What's your number one? Oh, hey, my uh, number one would be uh, Columbo, and my 1A would be Faulty Towers. <laughs> okay, those are good choices. I, I like that. Columbo. Kurt, what do you think of that choice? Oh, that's such a classic. I mean, that's uh, one that, yeah, maybe some younger audiences might not be too familiar with, but... Uh, Definitely, uh, that was peak TV back when that was out, for sure. Sure. Peter Falk, great character. He absolutely nailed that. Rick and Port mm-hmm. Moody. Hey, Rick. Hey, thanks for taking my call, Mike. You know, sure. I go back. I'm going back a long ways as well. Um, and a show that was number one its entire nine years it ran and was only canceled because the, the studios started going away from uh, rural humor, and it's the Beverly Hillbillies. Um, <laughs> 
love it. <laughs> yeah, L- love it, love it, love it. You know, it's um, clean. It's it, you know, the humor is is great. It's a great story. You can't not like the the, the Clampets. I mean, it's it's just great from start to finish. Okay, that makes me laugh just hearing the title of the show the show because I enjoyed it when I was a kid too. So that's a good choice. Okay, let's get to as many calls as we can. Jackie in South Surrey. Hi, Jackie. Hey, hi. I had so many on my list, but uh, okay. Law and Order from the 1980s. Chris Nosh, Moriarty. Of course, it's it, no, it's still going on, but it's changed so much. But Law and Order is mine. Yeah, Law and Order. Kurt, where would you where would you rank that? I would probably put it at least in the top 50 for sure. I mean, that's a show that uh, a lot of people were watching, uh, mostly, I think, in like the yeah late 80s, early 90s. And I, re- I have very fond memories of watching that show. It was such a interesting show, I guess, when you were watching it back then, because there wasn't too many gritty kind of shows like that back at the time. Yeah, it was a very influential show as well. Kim and New West. Hi, Kim. Hi, MASH. Hi. And they had such innovative shows um including no soundtrack or no laugh track i mean and mm. no uh, and the one show where they were timing the guy for 20 minutes it was amazing i loved mash and goodbye farewell and all men best yes, show the, ever yes that was the uh the fu- the finale which is uh is very memorable too and uh, yeah another vote for mash there which came in at number 25 on the Rolling Stone list. Call still coming in. Star 9898 on your cell. Let me know what your number one TV show is of all time. Gary and Pitt Meadows. Hey, Gary. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, sure. I have to go, I have to go with uh, Game of Thrones is my one. And my, if I had a 1A, it would be Hogan's Heroes. Hogan's, Hogan's Heroes, yes. Yeah, get a lot of uh, time out of that. Yeah, those, those funny bumbling uh, Nazis. <laughs> Such a weird, a weird concept for a show. Yeah. Game of Thrones. Wow, the right up there for a lot of people too, Kurt. Where do you rank Game of Thrones? And boy, House of the Dragon, the spinoff here now, is also probably the biggest show in the world right now too. So boy, talk about a back-to-back monster hits for HBO. Yeah, I mean, I, I maybe this is controversial, but I think the last season of Game of Thrones kind of ruined it for me. So I don't know. I, I even tried rewatching it recently, and I don't know. I just I couldn't get into it. I think it was because knowing where it all ends up at the end, I was just not as invested as I was when I was watching, watching the show and its run. Uh, but definitely House of the Dragon. I mean, that show is fantastic, and I think it's uh, yeah. telling a lot more of a concise story within the Game of the Thrones universe there. So. Definitely, I've been watching that every Sunday, like many of the listeners have, I'm sure. Yeah, me too. I'm enjoying House of the Dragon for sure. Dave in White Rock. Hi, Dave. What's your number one? Oh, hey. Hey, right on. Hey, look, the, the best show for me growing up was The Rockford Files. Uh, yeah. James yeah. Garner's character basically taught me how to be a real man. The only thing I, I, could, I didn't like is the fact that he didn't like to run. <laughs> okay. But James Garner, great actor. Uh, a buddy of mine worked in the movie business and did a little work with James Garner and told and he told me, assured me, he is he is an awesome guy. He was an awesome guy in real life, not just on the TV screen. So yeah, that was a it's a good pick, Dave. Thank you for that. Don in calling from Caledon. Hi, Don. It's actually John. Hi, Mike. John. Hi, John. Go ahead. How are you doing? Good. I, I just I had to mention uh, All in the Family it could, just because I mean by today's standards it's so controversial I don't even know if they could play reruns of it today but at the time it was it was awesome it was funny 
Yeah, all in the family is certainly very high on the on the list. The uh, the list here as well, and the from Rolling Stone. Kurt, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean that's definitely a show that uh, I think uh, has its moments, and I don't know. I'm not too sure. Yeah, if it's uh, maybe aged old that well, but uh, yeah, I mean there were some funny moments, and uh, I've watched re- well back when I was watching it was in syndication, and yeah, I watched a few episodes here and there. Uh, although some of the cast from there have gone on to do some other stuff too, and I think it shows Kurt. that the cast from there was just fantastic. Kurt, that was a lot of fun. We could keep going here, but we'll just have to have you back. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me.